Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Hour one was sensational. Hour two is going to be exactly the same. We've got Dr. Michael Brown. He's already on our studio line, so I'm going to bring him on in just a minute. He's written a new book called Jezebel's War with America, the plot to destroy our country and what you can do to defeat it. This is an eye-opening book, and it kind of shows the satanic plot to destroy America. And it really starts with an all-out assault on the church. But we need to, as believers, be equipped uh, with the tools to help understand the enemy at hand and what we can do. So let's take 60 seconds, and then we'll bring on Dr. Michael Brown. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. Dr. Michael Brown is host of a nationally syndicated Line of Fire radio program. He's author of the new book, Jezebel's War with America, The Plot to Destroy Our Country, and What We Can Do to Turn the Tide. He's an author and a pastor. Michael, nice to have you back on the show. Always great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. So you must have just gotten really fed up and said, all right, I'm going to write a book about this. I got I got moved on. I got stirred. I bet you, you did. Know, I, I'm <laughs> always writing. I'm working on different projects. But this one, I I got gripped. 70% of the book I wrote in about a six-day period, uh, just writing almost around the clock. And what I'm hearing from readers is they're reading the book the same day they get it. They're getting gripped the same way. And what happened was the dots just connected. I I looked around. I saw what was happening in society. And it's like a light went on. It's it's kind of the thing, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. But you start connecting the various dots, and you realize, wait a second, the same demonic forces that worked so powerfully 3,000 years ago through Queen Jezebel in the Bible, these same demonic forces are at work today powerfully. So we're not saying it's the ghost of Jezebel or the spirit of Jezebel, but the same concerted demonic attack with very definite symptoms. It's almost like a bunch of kids in your neighborhood all get sick, and then you find out that the symptoms are all related, and then it's all manifestations of the same disease. That's what we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, just to help our listeners uh, get a little refresher course on Jezebel, can you 
uh, sort of describe the type of woman she was in the Bible? Yes, she was a pagan princess. Her father was a Phoenician king, and she was a zealous idol worshiper. She married King Ahab of of Israel, who was already a godless man, Mm -hmm. and the scripture says that she incited him to do evil. She had an emasculating effect on her husband. You could say that she was like a radical, man-hating feminist in that regard, a zealous idol worshiper who was so committed that she killed the prophets of Yahweh. She intimidated by fear. And in the Bible, she's also associated with sexual immorality, and she is associated with sorcery. When you go to the New Testament, there is a false prophetess that Jesus calls Jezebel in Revelation 2. And it's possible that that was actually her name, or that's what Jesus called her. But she's also associated with sexual immorality and idolatry. So there's a seduction of God's people, there's a silencing of God's people, there's an intimidating by fear, there's an emasculating, there's a drawing into idolatry. These are the things that Jezebel did in the Bible. And, and when I realized that even the mighty prophet Elijah, at one time in his life, fled from this queen in fear, and when you see the amount of power she had and how demonized she was, you have to recognize, okay, this wasn't just a strong-willed human being. This was someone that was empowered by the devil to destroy. And those same powers are at work today. Wow. I can see why once you pick up the book, you don't put it down for a while. Yeah, I mean, once, once it begins to unfold, mm-hmm. and then you say, okay, let's look in America today. So the spirit of idolatry, the, the turning away from the one true God to worship created things— And then the spirit of sexual immorality. We've always had sexual immorality in every generation. But with porn, with intranet, it's it's on a level it's never been before. I mean, you you have eight-year-old kids can access on their cell phones stuff that I didn't know existed in my worst days as a teenage drug user 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you, you have that. And then in the ancient world, when you have idolatry, you also have baby killing. Babies would be sacrificed to idols. So I have a whole chapter in the book. Each of these is a whole chapter. I have one on the spirit of baby killing. And, and I compare what happened in the ancient world, the descriptions of sacrificing babies to idols, and then go over to late-term abortions or partial birth abortions, these horrific things today. And, and we're not talking about maybe a, a 12-year-old girl who got raped and she finds out she's pregnant. And, and, you know, she, does she have an abortion or not? She's in agony over it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the shout your abortion movement. We're talking about the women who were pounding on the front doors of the Supreme Court during the Kavanaugh hearings for their right to abort. So you have the militant abortion spirit. You also have the rise of radical feminism. I'm not talking about a good feminism that honors women and that says equal pay for a woman doing the same work as a man. No, I'm talking about a a man-hating feminism. Uh, You also have the rise of witchcraft, uh, reportedly more uh, witches than Presbyterians among millennials in America today, and the connection between radical feminism and witchcraft. Then you have the emasculating of men. Uh, You know, when I was a kid growing up, you saw TV shows like Father Knows Best and Ozzy and Harriet and Andy Griffith, and you had the the wise father who brought stability to the family. And and now, instead, 
You have the father's just a jerk or a wimp. I mean, the Homer Simpsons of the world. This has gone on for years and years. So there's the emasculating of men. If, if a man even acts like a, a good, strong father or dad, that it's toxic masculinity now. You have that. You have the silencing of the prophetic voices, the silencing of the church, the church afraid to speak up, leaders afraid to speak because of fear of consequences. And, and then you even have other contemporary events that tie in with Jezebel. So when you connect the dots, you realize, okay, yeah, maybe you could see the connection between radical feminism, say, and, and, and abortion. But now add in witchcraft, and now add in silencing of the prophets, and now add in the seduction of immorality, and now, now add in idolatry, and you see it's this unholy union meant to destroy, and the first line of attack is on the church. Hmm. How did we get from Father Knows Best to Father Knows Nothing? Yeah, well, there's a progression. And obviously, the enemy knows the importance of the role of, of the father mm-hmm. in society. We understand the crucial role of mothers, but you don't have a lot of motherless homes. You have a lot of fatherless homes, but you don't have a lot of motherless homes. Obviously, without a mother, the children will be raised in a way where there are many obstacles to overcome and many challenges. But what we have very commonly is fatherless homes, and it's clear that there's been an attack on on men and fathers in many different ways. Let's let's just think of a few of them. Whether the welfare system has uh, actively encouraged this or not, but you, you have a setting now where it's okay to have multiple children with different men, and you'll still be supported. So you have this situation of, of many kids raised in different settings without a physical dad there. You have the, the levels of distraction on society today and the polls and the degree you have to work hard and push. So you've got men absorbed in every other thing aside from being good, good dads and faithful husbands. You have the influence of porn. Think of this, that, that when a man becomes a slave to porn, he's, he's not a real man anymore. He doesn't have a right view of, of women anymore, and he can't even have a right, healthy view of himself when he's enslaved to that. You have, with radical feminism, the downgrading of maleness, and maleness itself is, is just evil and bad. I mean, you're guilty by default if you're male in today's society. You're suspected of being wrong and misogynist. And then with that, the, the ridiculing of the father in media, maybe a lot of the people involved, the, the screenwriters and the sitcom writers and these different things, maybe they had bad father images. Maybe they had rough upbringings. This is their way of lashing out or presenting negative pictures. But it's come from a bunch of different angles. And when you put it all together, men have been emasculated. And that's, that's one of the big characteristics of Jezebel, this taking away of a sense of your authority, this taking away of a sense of your confidence in God. In that sense, it can attack women as well where their spiritual authority, their spiritual confidence is gone, and, and instead there's kind of this uh, helpless feeling that you can't fight. You, you feel paralyzed by fear that is so much like this demonic Jezebel force. Wow. Dr. Michael Brown's my guest. Uh, he's written a book called Jezebel's War with America, the Plot to Destroy Our Country, and What We Can Do to Turn the Tide. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll find out what we can do to turn the tide. You're listening. 
presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Dr. Michael Brown is my guest, nationally syndicated line of fire radio program, author of the new book, Jezebel's War with America, the plot to destroy our country and what we can do to turn the tide. Michael, right before we went to break, I was uh, thinking about, you know, technology and how you were referencing eight-year-olds accessing porn on their phones. And I'm thinking that the, the number one activity on the Internet is viewing porn. There is no close second. Yeah, I, I have stats on that in Jezebel's War with America that are, that are really staggering. And you look at, you know, the, the most active websites, you know, the Amazon.coms and, you know, and the people going to Walmart.com to order and the people going to other sites, you know, that are heavily trafficked. And then you look at the porn traffic and it's, it's unreal. And uh, there's, there's a gentleman, a grad from our school in Europe, and he was teaching about the dangers of porn and then wrote to me and said, Dr. Brown, I, I'm, I'm addicted to porn. I've got to break free. Here he was teaching about the dangers of it, struggling himself, and he's doing great, doing wonderfully now, and, and a great ministry helping people in this area. But he told me, he said, you have to understand the whole thing is, is set up to draw you in. The moment you go to a site, you're going to start to get bombarded by advertising and pulling in. He said, and then with every addiction, you know, it takes you deeper. He said that this doesn't satisfy anymore. That's one of the things about the nature of sin, that it, rather than satisfy, it leads to more sin, then worse sin, then it enslaves you. And he was explaining to me that then, you know, you get pulled in. And then this doesn't satisfy you. So you got to go to harder porn. And then now you need to go to a chat room. But well, well no, I need to find just the right person. And, and he said it, it takes you deeper and deeper. Before you know it, you're spending hours and hours of every day with this habit. It's 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 unreal. And one of the things that we do in the book is is when we talk about how to how to fight and overcome Jezebel in your personal life. Again, the demonic forces associated with. Uh, with with this thing that we're seeing so how to overcome Jezebel in your personal life how to overcome Jezebel on a national level we lay out important steps and one of the things is, is, is the importance of of coming clean because if, if we are slaves to the flesh we are not going to walk in victory in the spirit if, if we ourselves are bound we're not going to see freedom come in other ways. We can't set others free. So we give a, a, a principles of freedom and then a bunch of links, free websites, uh, free courses, things people can enroll in specifically to get free from porn because this is a massive plague in America. And truth be told, it's a plague in the churches. Truth be told, it's a plague among leaders in the church. So why fight this silently? What we have to realize, let's say you're a man and there's a you know, beautiful-looking, seductive woman. Uh, she's a victim as well. That's one thing. The other thing is behind that smile, there are fangs. There's nothing pleasant. There's nothing nice. There's nothing helpful. There's nothing good. It is meant to destroy. And when you realize the demonic forces that are out to destroy you, your family, women are now struggling with this. Kids are struggling with it. You have men in their 20s who have to take Viagra to have sex with their girlfriends uh, because they're, they're so addicted to porn. They can't perform normally with a human being. They don't even know how to have a right relationship. So this is a plague. And, and we've got to deal with it head on. So we do our best to expose the ugliness of it, the evil of it, so that people recognize, okay, this is not just some harmless little thing or just some fleshly addiction. No, this is meant to destroy. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, how can we be wise about Satan's schemes and, and not fall into his traps? Well, the first thing is to recognize them. The first thing is to understand what's going on. You know, it's just like 
to stay with this imagery for a minute. If if you're a, a woman at work and and you know your husband is is not paying attention to you and and he's not intimate with you anymore and you're feeling very rejected and you got this handsome coworker who starts spending a little time with you and it gives you an extra smile and takes an interest in you, you got to recognize. Wait a second. Wait a second. There's a potential trap here. The same way with these various things going on in the world around us, when we see the horror of abortion, we have to recognize the same enemy that's trying to seduce us into idolatry, seduce us into sexual sin, seduce us into complacency. That same enemy is out to slaughter babies in the womb. In other words, see the ugliness of it, recognize it, connect the dots. And what's happened, interestingly, through the Trump presidency, we have a chapter on this, whether you voted for Trump or whether you'd never vote for Trump. It's the same principle here. Trump is like a Jehu figure. Jehu was a a king that was not of a a royal background. He was a general. He was accused or or described as driving recklessly or like a madman. And, And he was one of these alpha male types that got zealous for good causes, like Trump has, zealous for, for Yahweh worship and the people of God, and yet uh, there was a lot of collateral damage with what he did, a lot of extreme collateral damage. But interestingly, he's the one that brings down Jehu, uh, excuse me, that brings down Jezebel. Jehu brings down Jezebel. And since Trump has come into office, it's, it's almost like the most radical and extreme of the feminist witch forces have come forward. I mean, you've got, you've got radical feminist witches hexing the president and hexing the patriarchy. You've got radical feminists talking about blowing up the White House. You, you've got the, the militancy of the abortion movement beyond anything we've seen it. So it's almost like Trump coming into office has brought out these most extreme elements. It's not subtle. It's not cloaked. It's not in hiding. It's all out there in the open. The confrontation is here. And what we need to remember is we're not fighting people. These people are not our enemies. Jesus died for them the same as he died for us. We're fighting demonic powers, and that's where the battle lies. Mm, Very powerful, Michael. Um, So I know we've talked about this a little bit, but um, what are couple of practical tools yes so one thing is that we we need to overcome fear with faith okay there is the paralyzing force of fear and fear is always about something is going to go wrong tomorrow something bad is going to happen tomorrow fear is is this thing that stops us from doing something today because of fear of tomorrow so i I can't i can't i gotta i gotta get out of here I i can't do this What we need to do is meditate on what God's Word says about being with us. So I've got verses, I've got suggestions to to build up a spirit of faith with which we can bring down the spirit of fear. Second, as I mentioned, we've got to clean house in our personal lives. We can't be playing games with Jezebel on the one hand and defeating her on another hand. Another thing that we have to do is we have to learn to put on the armor of God. There are extraordinary biblical truths about the armor of God. And as we open up scripture, we see metaphorically that the armor that God gives us is the armor he wears. 
So metaphorically speaking, uh, we know that the sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God. So the sword that God gives us to fight with is the, the very Word of God. The same way with the armor, the shield, the breastplate. Ephesians 6 borrows from Isaiah 59 imagery that it's as if God himself wears this armor. So it's like you put on the Superman outfit and now you can fly. You put on the divine armor and you can bring down strongholds of darkness. And then, as interesting as this may sound... As we enter into encounter with God in worship, so the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. As we are filled with his promises and his presence, the joy of the Lord chases out fear and chases out hopelessness and gives a sense of victory and confidence. These are some of the things that help us in our personal lives overcome Jezebel. And then on a national level, obviously prayer and repentance and the raising up of the prophetic voice of the church and people pushing back and taking a stand and saying, I'm not going to be spiritually emasculated anymore. And, and then with that, when we, when we read in 2 Kings 9, when Jehu confronts Jezebel and she tries to seduce him, paints her face, he'll have none of it. He says, who's on my side? She's up in a window and two or three eunuchs come out and they throw her down. Again, we're not talking about hurting people. This is a spiritual image for us. It's the eunuchs. The men who were castrated, the men who were emasculated, they're the ones that throw Jezebel down. So the men of our society who've lost their sense of authority, who've lost their ability to be godly husbands and godly fathers, the pastors and leaders who who become spiritually castrated and are no longer willing to stand and speak, they have to stand up to Jezebel. As they cast her down, we can literally see national change. Mm. Maybe uh, one, maybe you've already mentioned this, but do you have a verse or two that uh, are your favorites as you fight this battle? Well, uh, when I sign books for the Jezebel book, and, and Bill, I, I spoke to a crowd of several thousand, maybe about seven, 8,000 last month, and we did a book signing afterwards. I signed books for two and a half hours, literally. Uh, what a joy and a privilege. And in every single book, I wrote down Ephesians 6.12 in every single book, Ephesians 6.12, which tells us we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in high places. There is a systematic demonic war against us. Another wonderful verse. So that one reveals what's happening in the spirit. Isaiah 54.17, a glorious verse. No weapon formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, says the Lord. So our battle is in the Lord, equipped with his authority, equipped with his power. We can see Jezebel defeated, and and it is absolutely urgent. I, I was shocked the first week the book came out, the first printing sold out. The publisher was shocked. It, it, it looks like we hit a nerve we struck a chord, and as I said earlier, we're hearing from readers. They get the book, and they read it the same day. So something is stirring. Something's yeah. coming alive. Jezebel's being exposed. I feel like it's a key moment now for the Church of America to rise up and, and take back the ground that's been taken from us. Michael, thank you so much for doing the show, and uh, look forward to our next visit. God bless you, sir. Thank you so much. Dr. Michael Brown's been my guest. And his book is called Jezebel's War with America, The Plot to Destroy Our Country and What We Can Do to Turn the Tide. We'll take a short break and be back with Greg Kokel.
You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. All right, we all need to be engaging in thoughtful dialogue with others about what our Christian convictions are, what our convictions are. But maybe if you're having an argument, maybe you feel like, oh, I don't want to do that because it's going to evolve into something that's not going to be pretty. We just need to be better prepared, better equipped. And my guest, uh, Greg Kokel, is, uh, I got his book in my hand. It's called Tactics. It's been updated and expanded. This is the 10th anniversary edition. It's a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. And I would just say this is a book you're going to definitely want to have in your library. Greg has uh, got his master's degrees in both apologetics and philosophy. He has uh, hosted his own radio talk show for more than 30 years, Defending Christianity, worth thinking about. So don't change the channel because you're about to hear a true radio professional. And I'm not talking about myself. Greg, welcome. Well, Bill, uh, you <laughs> flatter me. Thank you. It's good to chat with you again today. Well, th- this book is, uh, is, is a, great, uh, it's a great piece of work. You've done an amazing job. And I love the fact it's been expanded, and I haven't had a chance to to read all the expanded parts, but uh-huh. I've read the book before, and it's uh, it's stuff in this book, Greg, sticks in yeah. my brain, and I think well, that's important. Thank you. I, 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 it first came out 10 years ago, and in the last 10 years, not only has it made a big difference in so many people's lives, I know because they tell me this all the time when I travel and speak, um, but uh, I've also learned better ways to explain the things that I have in there and develop some new things as well. And this is why I thought a 10th anniversary edition, significantly expanded, updated, um, would be appropriate for, for, for Christians because it's getting harder and harder and harder um, to engage thoughtfully in the culture, largely because the culture doesn't want to think much. They just want to, they just want to yell a lot. And so I think the tactics that um, that I teach in the book and the game plan especially, which is the core of the book, are the kind of thing that are going to help multitudes of followers of Jesus to engage more effectively with the people that disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And don't you find, Greg, that when you produce something like this uh, book and then you talk about it over a decade, that it just becomes... Uh, you make new and more discoveries every time you open your mouth about the book. Yeah, well, I have found that, you know, by by teaching people over the last 10 years, um, I just realized, as I mentioned, there are some new ways that I have come to uh, to ex- explain the other ideas and expand on them. For example, um, I talk about the concept of what I call gardening compared to harvesting. Which I love. Thank you. Uh, it, the, I just give a brief mention of it in the uh, in the in the first edition. In the second edition, I spend a lot more time on it, and the reason is, is because when I talk about this concept, I have people just come unglued with excitement uh, about really functioning in a more free and more effective way in their conversations. Indeed, I was just uh, in the Washington D.C. area last weekend, and when I gave the opening presentation just on that material, I had, during the break, I had three people come up to me. I promise you, three people. And they said, essentially, you have set me free. In fact, that that was almost their exact words, because it gave them um, a real grip on a concept that is not emphasized very much in Christian circles with evangelism, but is emphasized a lot in the Bible, and that might be what you call pre-evangelism, you know, tilling and plowing and making the soil ready. That's why I call it gardening. 
And so much of the work that is makes an effective harvest is actually done in the gardening phase. And I, most people are not harvesters. I'm not. I'm a gardener, you know, and um, and that's what I've seen God work in my life over the last 35, well, actually, I've been a Christian 46 years now. And when I convey that notion carefully to them, as I do in this newer edition of Tactics, people really get excited. As they should, because they can identify themselves as, maybe that's me, I'm more of a gardener. And then all of a sudden, you're you're released from this anxiety of every time you speak to someone for the first time, if I don't lead them to a decision... I'm a failure, which is yeah, ridiculous. Or, or at least try to do that, yes. and that's the pressure a lot of people are in. That make them sit on the fen- on the uh, on the bench. Quite frankly, Bill, and and uh, so I think you're right about that. Well, you're actually right about it. Uh, but when you talk about uh, a baseball player getting up because it is baseball season, and he does does right. not try to get to the to the uh, batter's box to win the game, except if it's in the bottom of the ninth. You, but you know what I mean. He's trying to get on base and advance advance the cause. That's right. Um, no game is one, really, I mean, generally speaking, by a single player. It's a bunch of people that are doing small bits here and there and here and there. If you Look, at if you can get somebody that can get on base every single time they're up to bat, this isn't my expectation, but I'm just giving this as an illustration. If you can do that, then then you're going to have a winning team um, because, you, you know, every time somebody's up to base, they're advancing the other people around. So if we can teach people how to garden, not swing for the fences, not hit home runs, but rather just to show up and get in the batter's box and be taught how to swing effectively. And that's what this is. That's the tactical game plan. We're going to get a whole lot more harvest than we ever have been before, have done before. And I think that so many more people are going to be involved in the process and enjoying it, Bill. Mm-hmm. Like you say in your book, Greg, a lot of people uh, don't go from uh, zero to commitment in one exchange. That's right. And I think I just had my spiritual birthday about um, almost two weeks ago, 46 years as a Christian. And that night in uh, the west side of Los Angeles, 1973, September 28th, uh, my brother came over to talk with me about Christ, and he'd been talking with me for a long time. He was the gardener in my life, the big one. And I just told him, Mark, you don't have to talk to me anymore about Jesus. I've already decided I want to become a Christian. So there is an example of what I'm talking about. When the fruit is ripe, it falls into the basket, Mm -hmm. right? Easy. However, the only way it's going to get ripe is if there was a lot of gardening that was done beforehand. And in my case, it took a lot of gardening. And nowadays, by the way, in most people's case, it takes a lot of gardening, a lot more than before. Mm -hmm. Greg, let's talk about arguing. All right. Yeah. So when we start to find ourselves, in, argue, no. oh yeah, you listen <laughs> up here, pal. Uh, no, we, we we start to find ourselves in arguments. Uh, is that uh, when do we win? When do we lose? And how do we defend our faith and and do it with obviously conviction and and be willing to engage with another person and stand strong? Well, there's a couple things. One is that um, people are are like phobic of arguments a little bit because they think of an argument as a quarrel. And Paul says directly in Second Timothy chapter 2 that we are not to get into fights with people. We're not to get into right. quarrels, okay? Right. That does no good. If anybody gets mad, we're going to lose. If we get mad or they get mad, anybody gets mad, we're going to lose. So we don't want to get into that kind of exchange. However, strictly speaking, an argument is when you're offering a point of view and you're giving reasons for it. Well, that kind of exchange just happens all the time in the Bible, and we are to do that in an amicable, patient kind of way. 
And in fact, it is very difficult to get people to you know, sink their teeth into the truth unless we are willing to give them reasons why they should believe what we believe. Now, sometimes people have emotional experiences. Okay, fair enough. But those things, lots of times, don't last. When Christians leave the church, especially young people, when they're polled, they almost always say that some something to the order of, nobody answered my questions, I don't see any good reasons to stay a Christian, and this is especially when more attractive options seem to be available to them out there in the world. And so we have an obligation to give the reasons, and the reasons abound, Bill, as you know. They're all out there. And how do we do that in a gracious way without getting in a fight? And this is where the game plan comes in, because what I teach in the book Tactics is a specific game plan that has some three very basic steps, and I teach you how to do it, that employ very particular ways of asking questions in order to move the conversation forward in a friendly fashion. I mean, you do radio interviews just like you're doing now. Uh, I'm doing all the work, (laughs) but you are guiding the conversation by the questions that you ask. And in the same way, um, when we're in conversation with non-Christians, we can avoid having quarrels, that kind of argument, by knowing how to maneuver with questions to direct the conversation so that they're doing more of the talking and we're doing less, but we're getting, we're making progress for our view because of the way that the game plan is being used. And that's the key to the whole thing, Bill. Mm -hmm. So Greg, do you want to ask me a question so I do more of the work? <laughs> no, I want to be. I want to do the talking here. <laughs> okay, this is just uh, the way. It, this is just the way it's supposed to go. I so, know. Uh, but but when but when we're if you are a non-Christian, I definitely would do that. I right. would definitely ask you some questions about, say, a challenge that you offered me. Almost every single time somebody offers a challenge to Christianity, Bill, there's there's some ambiguity there. They might say, "Well, everything's relative." or the Bible's been changed, or there, there is no God. So instead of trying, for me, if you were to offer that to me as a non-Christian and a challenge, I wouldn't try to immediately fix the problem for you. Lots of Christians don't know how to fix some of those problems, you know, and I appreciate that. Rather, I'm going to uh, ask a question. And my basic first question is to gather information to get more understanding of exactly what the person's view is or what their challenge to Christianity is. And that's why I'm going to ask them some form of the question, uh, what do you mean by that? So if they say, well, the Bible's been changed. Really? Tell me about it. In what way has it been changed? How has it been corrupted? Now it's their turn to talk. Right. What's amazing in a question like that, though, is a lot of people say the Bible's been changed because they've heard other people say the Bible's been changed, not because they've ever studied the issue. If they studied the issue, they would realize that this is not the problem that a lot of people make it out to be. But they haven't studied the problem. They threw out the challenge, and it stonewalls Christians. If the Christian just simply said, okay, go on, tell me a little bit more about what you understand, how the Bible's been changed, and then see where they go. Now, incidentally, even if a Christian doesn't know how to answer the question by, uh, I mean, answer the challenge, by asking that question, they throw the ball into the other person's court, it buys them some time, it makes it a friendly exchange, and then you get to see what the other person has. 
If the other person has something substantial that you don't know uh, how to deal with it, you can thank them for the information and say, you know what, I want to think about that. That's a fair point. Let me think about that. And when you say, let me think about that, it takes all the pressure off of you. You don't have to answer because you can't because you don't know that. But then when the pressure is off, you can do some study and find out about it. There's no problem with not having the right answer. Um, I have lots of things I don't know have the answers to. So, but, but I think it's fair to be able to say, okay, explain your concern more thoroughly. What do you mean by that? And then let me think about it. So there's just a, a little example of, of how in circumstances like that, that game plan can work very comfortably and effectively. In a, in a conversation where you want to make a point, you're trying to get something across or answer a challenge, but you don't exactly know what to do. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get caught flat-footed. Just ask a question, especially the question, what do you mean by that? All right, or Greg, some variation. Yeah, that's awesome. Let me take a little break. When I come back, lots more with Greg Kokel. He's my guest. His book is Tactics, now in its 10th anniversary edition. You're going to want to get your hands on one of these copies and have it in your library. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Greg Kokel. Uh, he's been on the show a couple of times before, and his book Tactics is uh, it's a great, great book. Uh, I, it's been expanded. It's uh, there's forty percent more material. He's had a decade to think about it, and he's done some great additions. And it's a a great way to learn how to initiate conversations a little bit more effortlessly how to be always presenting the truth clearly and do it cleverly and do it persuasively and be gracious and effective and able to skillfully manage the details of a dialogue. Because I, I love your Columbo effect because that keeps things on track, keeping people accountable to what they say. Because often, Greg, like you say, they are just repeating something they've heard. That's right. Well, the, you mentioned Columbo, and a lot of people remember Lieutenant Columbo from like three decades ago on mm-hmm. TV, and of course reruns are still in play. And he was the one who had seemed disarm, disarming. You know, he was a uh, like he was befuddled much of the time, and, and uh, I mean, he seemed kind of stupid. Yes. Uh, but he was stupid like a fox, right? Right. Because he, he had a technique, and that was to kind of ask these innocent-sounding questions that allowed him to gather the information he needed and then finally move in for the kill, so to speak, to capture the bad guy. Now, we're not in for the kill, as it were, but we are in to make a point and to encourage people. And I find that using questions provides something that's been missing for a lot of people, and that is a bridge from the content to the conversation or from the scholarship to the relationship. You can uh, learn a lot of stuff from books or, you know, our own radio show at Stand to Reason or our website at str.org or uh, other things that other great people have written. You can learn them, but then the question is, how do you get those into play effectively in a conversation? And this is where the game plan comes in. It, it provides that bridge into a conversation, but in a clever way, using questions to maneuver. I mentioned the first stage of the game plan is to um, uh, is to gather information. You just want to get more information. Before you think about going anywhere else, just get as much information as you can from the people about their own view and their own objection. And that gives you some foundation to, to move forward maybe from uh, to the to the next question that you might ask. But it's a super easy way to have friendly conversations. 
Yeah, Greg, how important is it to anticipate some objections that you might get so you can maybe have some of this thought through in advance? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty important and um, because most people, and that includes me, are not quick on their feet. That is, they don't, they're not able to come back with a snappy rejoinder or a quick fact or they're back at you kind of thing. Um, and, so, uh, and so it's a good idea to prepare in advance. So here, here's a question. I mean, here's an idea. If somebody listening here maybe has an objection or a challenge to Christianity, that if they're talking to somebody about Christ, they dread having the other person raise you know, they say, oh, man, I hope he doesn't ask this question or he doesn't go here. Well, that's the one they should take and say in advance um, when the pressure is off uh, on their own, um, find out maybe a good way that or I should say content wise, a good way of dealing with that challenge first. So, you know, the content second, find a way to maneuver in a conversation if somebody asks you that question, find a way to maneuver with that content with questions, with a question. And so um, uh, I remember, for example, uh, before the the Obergefell decision on the Supreme Court about same-sex marriage, you know, people say, well, you don't believe in marriage equality. You don't believe in marriage equality uh, to the Christian because we don't believe in same-sex marriage. You know, that's, that makes it sound like we're really, really narrow, okay? So, so what do you say to that? I actually was thinking about this. And so I came up with a question. Do you think that children should get married? Well, of course not. Okay, well, then you don't believe in marriage equality either. You just believe that the definition of marriage should be expanded to include same-sex couples. So since neither of us believe in marriage equality, why do you think that the ch- definition of marriage should be changed. Notice that there are two questions there, okay? One question is to deflect the, the charge that I don't believe in marriage equality, and they do. The second question is to get them to make some justification for their point of view. Now, somebody listening may think, well, what if he say, says this, that, or the other thing? Well, I'm not carrying this whole conversation out. I'm just using it as an illustration about how I thought in advance of a question to parry the tough charge that comes right out at you and you don't know how to respond to. That's the kind of thing that anybody can do with any charge or any challenge to buy them a little bit more time. That's preparing in advance that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's really helpful a lot. I appreciate that, Greg. Talk about the stone in the shoe. Oh, yeah. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier about gardening, and uh, I tell audiences now that when I get in a conversation that I hope will have a spiritual impact in somebody's life, I never, I, I never plan to try to lead them to the Lord. I, I never even plan to give them the gospel. And, uh, of course, I want them to become Christians, and the gospel is necessary, but I don't know anything about where they're at, and I need some intel to find out before I know how to proceed. And this is the whole game plan that comes in, gathering information, etc. Now, um, what is my goal, though, if my goal isn't to lead them to the Lord? And I'll tell you my goal. My goal is to just, as you put it, put a stone in their shoe. That is, give them something worth thinking about. I was at George Mason University speaking uh, last weekend, and I told that to the crowd, to the audience right at the outset. I said, I'm not here to convert you tonight, but I do want to uh, annoy you a little bit in a good way. 
I want to put a stone in your shoe. I want you walking out of the auditorium here with something that I've said that's getting at you a little bit, and you're thinking about Jesus because I think Jesus is worth thinking about. So that's the only goal that I have. I'm not under. I don't place myself under a big pressure to try to, you know, get the people to sign on the dotted line. No, I'm just committed to gardening. That's all I'm committed to. Who knows where the conversation is going to go? Maybe it'll go all the way. But I'm not under pressure to push it all the way. I realize I'm not the only one on the team. There's lots of people on the team like me, and most of us are gardeners, I'm convinced. And so if I could just get in there and do a little bit of good by asking some questions to get somebody thinking, I'm going to be a happy camper. I just want to put a stone in their shoe. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that very much. I also am going to ask if you have an opportunity to present the gospel clearly to a group, uh, do you not also feel uh, compelled to it? to at least offer an invitation for people to pray to receive Christ? Well, this, this is not my style, okay. and I'll tell you why. Um, if I have an opportunity to offer the, the gospel in a clear way, I'll take it. But notice, you know, Jesus didn't give the good news every single time he spoke mm-hmm. through the gospels. Most of the time he gave the bad news and not sit there a bit. But um, if I might say something like... Um, you know, about about putting, I said, I invite people to follow Jesus or to trust Jesus. But I, I don't really do much altar call kind of stuff. I do the same thing that you see in the book of Acts. The altar call stuff, like giving a people a challenge to trust Christ, this is historically new. 19th century, actually, in the Second Great Awakening. Prior to that, you didn't have that kind of thing, and you don't have it actually in the book of Acts. What you have is the gospel being preached and communicated to people, and then people either believe or don't believe. Now, I'm not against altar calls so much, but sometimes I think altar calls, the way they're done with the music and the emotional appeals, end up getting decisions that aren't really conversions. Mm -hmm. And I want conversions, so I don't want to rush the matter. I want the Holy Spirit to work to bring conviction of sin and a need for someone to put their a conscious need, awareness of the need for somebody to put their trust in Christ. So I'm just I'm going to follow a biblical uh, motif without feeling bad about presenting the good news without asking for a decision. And if the circumstances seem good, I might ask people if they want to trust in Christ. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, and if they want to pray to do that. But I don't feel the pressure to do that. Yeah. Because what what you want is this wave of of reason, this rush of reason to come into a person's mind and heart, prompted by the Holy Spirit that says, "This is something I want to do like now, right?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you want to, we give them the the wave of reason, so to speak, the good reasons, mm-hmm. the sound gospel, well defended, and then the Holy Spirit takes that and does what He wants with it. And uh, it's up to Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, to to make the changes in people's hearts, and that's that's what I'm looking for. I want to communicate the truth as clearly, as persuasively, and as graciously as possible, and then let God take it from there. Mm-hmm. Because as exciting as evangelism is, and to me, it's the most exciting thing in, in the world to do. There are times when you need to focus on gardening, because well, I, yeah. I actually think gardening is the heart of evangelism. Does that make sense? Oh, total sense. And and I'm thankful for people like you, Bill, for whom evangelism is really exciting. But there's a whole bunch of people out there 
that it's not exciting for, and it's not the main thing in my life. My heart is more for discipleship than it is for evangelism. But evangelism is something that needs to be a part of every Christian's life. So even the Christians that aren't jazzed about it or even frightened about it, once they get a good game plan in their hands, like they can find in the book Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions, this is going to motivate them to get involved in a significant part of evangelism, and that is the gardening. And that's what I get thrilled about. Mm -hmm. And I would agree, Greg, and I would think of myself as a gardener. Uh I do love evangelism, but the more I think about it, I, I do love to get people thinking and ask them questions and have them uh, question their questions and talk about their doubts. And to me, that's where it gets really exciting. Yeah. yeah if uh, Here's the way I think I'd put it for you, Bill. You love closing the deal when you can. But if, you, <laughs> if you can't close the deal, you can't do the harvest, then you can do the garden, and that's great, too. It's all part of the same process. Oh, uh, you made me feel so good, Greg. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for doing the show, and congratulations on uh, your work. And this is a great 10th anniversary edition of a book called Tactics. It's been updated and expanded. Greg Kokel. K-O-U-K-L is my guest. This is a book you're going to just want to have in your library. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, Just I love you, and I I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.